whatever it was, the prince challenged him to a duel for insulting his mistress. Mega oh. simp over here. <laughs> How dare you pick on my favorite cam girl? <laughs> yeah, absolute simp, Prince Alexander von Sein Wittgenstein Berleberg. <laughs> Why won't you debate me on my podcast? <laughs> what an asshole. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Drasvitsia. Hmm. I have no idea what that means, but we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. Ran out of breath there, that was strange. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're gonna try anyway. So, George, who do we have this week? This week, we are returning to South Africa by way of Russia to learn about a Russian badass named Yevgeny Maximov. Well, I... I'm glad. Well, we are going back to South Africa. We haven't gotten enough of South Africa. This is the year of South Africa. But uh, I'm just going to guess that anybody who is in South Africa doesn't like the British. And I'm, I'm guessing even if they're Russian, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, let's let's be real. Does anyone like the British? This is a legitimate point, my good sir. <laughs> yes, yes, quite. Thank you. Yes, very good. Empire. Yeah. Uh, well, because they brought us the clown world we live in now, I will say, in order to say fuck the British, let's quit clowning around and get started at with haste. Atlichna, davai. Um, again, I, I don't know what that means because I'm not Russian. Oh, and before we go down, I wanted the listeners to know that we have finally reached the coveted status of having a 4.5 on iTunes. And that's 4.5 out of 5. Now I know what you're thinking. Aaron, don't you want a 5.0? Well, the answer to that is no, and for multiple reasons. The main one being that now that media is being converged into one giant propaganda machine that hates everybody, the only podcasts with five-star ratings are normie casts like Joe Rogan and anything by NPR. So having achieved our independence from the five-star shackles, we are announcing our bid for the presidency of the United States of America! And with that... <laughs> I, did you have anything you want to say about that, by the way? Uh, I really didn't, actually. Are, aren't you excited we're running for the presidency? I don't know, I don't want to take votes away from Kanye. <laughs> well, apparently anyone can run now! And being slightly less uh, than approved, so having a 4.5 out of 5 on iTunes... That's, uh, that's a mark of legitimacy these days. So when I say I'm glad we have a 4.5, I'm saying I'm glad we have a 4.5. Because I want, I've been looking for podcasts to listen to at work because it's literally all I listen to all day when I'm not listening to audiobooks. The only good ones have 4.5 out of 5. And all the bad ones, all the, like, all the, the approved NPR iHeartRadio, like, they all have 5.0s, including one called, uh, well, actually, Stuff They Don't Want You to Know has a 4.5, mainly because it they just talk about stuff that any normie can know if they, they Google it, uh, and they pretend to be like a legitimate conspiracy podcast, which just cracks me up, but they're, uh, I think they're owned by NPR. I don't know. I'm just ranting now. Coffee's kicking in. Well, uh, on that note, I think we should probably <laughs> move on. <laughs> all right, to the history lab!
man's honor is his greatest treasure, he will stop at nothing to restore it. Wars, duels, more wars, and a Romanian woman. This story has it all. Join us as we discover the almost lost history of Yevgeny Maximov, and probably also rant against the British, the Turks, and the goddamn Bolsheviks. So, George, if you wanted to undermine and ultimately destroy a nation, how would you go about it? Well, that's easy, Aaron. Ideological subversion. First you've got demoralization, then destabilization, then crisis, then normalization. You don't have to take my word for it, though. Go watch the 1984 interview with KGB defector Yuri Bezmenov that just so happened to have been featured in the new Call of Duty trailer. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I never thought we'd say the name Yuri Bezmenov on this podcast, but, uh, Call of Duty made it normal, so I guess we can start talking the real shit now. Um, but we can't really go down that Russian rabbit hole right now, so we're gonna go down a different one. Computer, please bring up eggplant marketing and sales. I don't even know why I bother anymore. <laughs> All right, so it looks like our uh, eggplant marketing and sales is up. Who the fuck are we actually looking at here? Uh, Yuri. No, not Yuri Bezmenov. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. Yevgeny Maximov, not eggplant marketing. I see, and it appears that we have an image of him here. We do. We actually have two images, so why don't you go ahead and describe, if you would, the physical appearance of the very illustrious gentleman below. Okay. Well, looking at the two pictures, uh, I would say in the first picture he's got that sort of steely-eyed stare into the winter of Russia. He's just sort of like... Yeah, I grew this mustache to protect my lips from the cold, and that's the main reason. Nothing ornamental, like literally if I don't have this mustache, I will have frozen lips by the end of this this podcast. Um, first picture, he's got what looks like a saber, or, well, it's kind of cut off, it might be a, a knife or a dirt it's a or saber. something like that. It's a saber, okay, cool. And he's wearing a uniform with strikingly few medals, must have been before the, uh, the communist takeover of some kind. And uh, his hair's all slicked back. And, uh, yeah, just kind of, like, staring off into the future, unafraid. He's got rather large earlobes, which is interesting. Oh, yeah, I, you know, I I will admit I didn't look that closely at it before, but you're right. They are striking. Yeah. <laughs> striking earlobes. In the second picture, he looks a little bit less weather-beaten, though I almost feel like this picture might have been taken... Well, it looks like it was taken earlier, because um, he looks younger, but that might just be the photographic technique... He's got a dinky little fedora-looking thing. It's not well. It's not a fedora. He's got One the, side it's the hat. Up. It's the South Africa Boer hat. Oh my God! Oh no! Um, and speaking of South Africa, he's got some kind of looks like a cross. Is that just a? That looks like a like a button or something. But there's some weird symbology going on on his arms there. Do you know what that is? Um, it was a uniform of his own design. Because in the, oh, since, <laughs> since the Boers didn't have a real standing army and everyone wore whatever they wanted, he just, uh, after he, as we'll find out, ascended the ranks, he just made up his own uniform for what a general should dress in. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, no, he, he looks like a fairly normal dude in this photo. A little bit thinner, thinner beard. Um, not it, is, it is earlier. It is earlier. 
Okay, yeah. It's not as pronounced a mustache, but he also looks like he still has empathy in his eyes, which he definitely doesn't in the other image. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I would say, uh, yeah. That, what about, that's about what about all the, I got. What about the earlobes? The earlobes look like they they were much significantly smaller. Um, perhaps his ears melted due to all the artillery barrages and... Um, I mean, who knows? I, I really don't I really don't know. He does have a bandolier. That's kind of cool. I'm, I'm all about that. I I bought one of those when I was like 11 at a gun show and just wore it around the house. Of course you did. <laughs> Typical, I know. <laughs> anyway, enough banter. Let's uh, let's get into it. Roger that. So, like we said in the trailer, this is an almost lost history. There's never been a book written about this man. He doesn't appear in the main Russian biographical dictionaries. His grave is forgotten and unknown in Manchuria, which is almost uh, 5,000 It's almost 5,000 miles from his home, and it's really really tragic that we don't have more details or information about this amazing man, but we remain undaunted and we are going to do our best with what we've got and try to put some chaos on this man's name. What what does that mean? Uh chaos is um Roughly translated as glory. It's what if you're, uh, you know, an ancient Greek hero, it's what you're all about is the kleos. That's your ultimate goal in life. Nice. Is there like a Greek word? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Basically, kleos is people respecting you after you're dead. I can't wait to have kleos, but I got to die first. (laughs) You also got to do something first that (laughs) brings it. (laughs) Wow, that actually came out much more bitey than I was intending. (laughs) I was not. I was not actually going for that stab to the heart. <laughs> that shot was well put by. Uh, wow, Kleos. Is there a Greek word for hot pockets? I'm just kidding. All right, please carry on. So anyway, um, Yevgeny Yakovlevich Maximov was born on March 4th, 1849. In 1849, uh, I need more coffee or less, I'm not sure. 1849 in a place called Zarskoyosela, which is a nice suburb of St. Petersburg. So he probably lived in a nice little cul-de-sac and had a trampoline and rode a bike. Nice. And, you know, those <laughs> things that people who live in the nice suburbs do. I wouldn't know. It- and every time you went on his paper route, you had uh, you had sort of dancing pizzicato, and then a flute kicks in, and he's like waving. He's like, "Good morning, Max, or not Maximo? I gotta think of another Russian name. Good morning, Yuri Bezmenov." And Yuri goes, "Ideological subversion." Literally, the only two Russian names: Yuri and Maximov. All right, so I wish. You want to hear something funny? Did you get a text from Yuri Bezmenov? No, I got a text from Donald Trump. Oh. Uh, this could be your... This I got a text from Pence yesterday. I signed up for these for fun. I didn't sign up for um, Beto's text, but I got those anyway. But I did sign up for Trump's just for kicks. Um, it says, this could be your last chance to order a Trump face covering. Act now. Only 500 left to hit our goal. Donate $20 to get yours. Spare me. <laughs> All right, please carry on. I'm sorry. Amazing. Anyway, so I wish we had more information about um, Yevgeny's family, but it's it's pretty it's pretty scarce. So his mother, we know, wasn't actually Russian. She was Swedish, which we'll try not to hold against her. I know Fair we enough. have a we have mixed views on the Swedes in this podcast, if memory serves. I don't think any of them listen to anything useful, anyway. Yeah, it's probably true. His father um, was Russian, and he was a ship captain in the Russian Navy, 
and a hereditary honorary citizen of Livland, which isn't important to the story, but seemed like a cool thing, so I put it in. What is Livland? That's like uh, Estonia, Latvia area now, and it was uh, one of the provinces of the Russian Empire. Hmm, interesting. Okay. And it, yeah, so, as I said, not important to the story, but it was cool. Um, the Wikipedia article says that his mother was a Swedish aristocrat, but Disgusting. I, I read the text they cite for that, and it literally doesn't say that she was an aristocrat, just that she was Swedish. So I don't know what to say about that. I don't know if it's true. Maybe they, whoever wrote the Wikipedia article got it from somewhere else and put it in there and just cited the wrong thing. But it also might not be true, and I really don't know. Because as I said, I literally read their citation, and it does not say anything about her being an aristocrat. So well, she I very mean, well could have been. Yeah. I was going to say, with Admiral Byrd, I mean, when I was just sort of perusing the Wikipedia article before I got far away from that thing, um, you know, I, I said it last week, but they, they, they cited a source that was literally a children's book of made-up stories for the Boy Scouts as a source. So, yeah, I mean, it's not that, like, okay, so, like, people go, oh, citation needed, uh-uh, uh-uh, not just, not any citation, you need a real citation, because... <laughs> There are, there are idiots out there who will literally just read a book of stories for children and be like, that sounds legit. Yes. So it seems. So it seems. Mm. So anyway, so this leads us to the question, why is there so little information available? Well, his family were what is or politely called si devant, um, meaning from before. It's a term I had to look up because I didn't know what it was. And it, it's the term that's used after some sort of big social change for the people who are kind of clinging to or somehow representing the old social order. Can you guess what that social change might have been in Russia? Um, th Something, something communism. Exactly. Um, okay, and hold up, hold up real quick. One, one quick thing. So you said si devant, right? That yep. doesn't sound Russian to me. Why does that sound French? Because fancy terms are always in French. But also, but also the uh, the whole thing about the like, revolution, the, the French well, Revolution. And the, yeah, and the Russian aristocracy all speaking French because of that. I just I just want to put that in there. That too. That's and and just so y'all know, the only reason I know that is because I read big fat books by Russian conservatives called uh, War and Peace, and uh, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm just trying to sound smart right now. Anyway, so yeah, what this means is that. Uh, his family were very much a part of the pre-revolutionary social order and didn't immediately switch over to being willing participants in the Bolshevik order. So for people like this, persecution was constantly looming <clears throat> and intimidation, uh, searches or arrests could happen pretty much whenever. And if you know much about Soviet law enforcement, you'll know that pretty much anything could be used to show that you were guilty of something. So it's right. safer just to not have things and to not keep things around that tie you to the old days, especially if you're a family with strong connections to the czarist military. Could you, I'm um, just real quick, could you give us an example of something that's like, that was used um, sort of, uh, what's the word, in a predatory fashion to arrest yeah, so, somebody? Yeah, um... I cannot remember. This is a real a real instance. I cannot remember who it was because there were so many. This was under Stalin when one of a former high ranking Soviet official who was uh, getting purged from Stalin's um, hierarchy at his trial. The name of his pet fox 
was brought up because and it was just like a common first name because that first name was also the first name of someone who had previously been purged. And so the evidence was that he was clearly secretly a counter-revolutionary because he must have named his pet fox after this traitor. I mean, here's the thing, George, and I'll just, I'll just be straight up with you here. I've never heard that story before, and I think a year ago I would have laughed at that. But uh, I'm right now I'm just going to say I really fucking hate communists. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's the kind of thing that can happen in the Soviet system. So, yeah, pretty much just get rid of everything, literally just everything. As a result of this, almost all of the family papers and archives were piled into laundry baskets and taken outside and burned. Right, um, of course. Yeah. So just as in the Maoist, the Maoist revolution, people took out thousand-year-old family tapestries of their entire lineage and burned those as well. Or if they had any balls at all, they buried them in their garden at risk of being put on trial and killed. Yep. So there's that. So um, his son, uh, this is Yevgeny's son, who was actually located by a Russian historian in 1977, remembers as a small child being allowed to go through the documents and cut out any interesting stamps for his stamp collection before they were burned. Oh, it's so simple. I know, it's, it's, it's beautiful and sad. It's like charming in a dark kind of way. Yeah, but his son also had a few very select pieces of family history that were secretly saved from the flames, which is the basis for a lot of what we can know. Uh, but I think at the end, we might come back and talk a little bit more about how this story was preserved. So back to the back to the story of Yevgeny Maximov. Right on. So we know nothing about his childhood due to the aforementioned bullshit. Uh, he went to high school. Don't know which one, just that he went to school. Uh, He then went to the Technological Institute of St. Petersburg, but decided that whatever he was doing there wasn't for him and that he'd try law instead. But he Uh didn't last very long at the law faculty of St. Petersburg University before deciding that that was also not for him. So he did the. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) So he did the old standby and followed his father's footsteps by joining the military in 1869. Illuminati confirmed. And I'm going to take a shot of coffee. 69 it's a joke okay it's a fucking joke (laughs) anyway so he enlisted (laughs) in the lifeguard mounted grenadier regiment um then the lifeguards are one of the forces that they originally just guarded wherever the czar was they were his sort of personal bodyguards but eventually they became a sort of proto special forces elite branch of the military I mean, that sounds all fancy and whatnot, but I'm still just imagining Baywatch. I I know. I know. (laughs) But apparently this wasn't very exciting, which isn't exactly surprising since he wasn't going anywhere or fighting anything since it was peacetime. Uh, So just real quick. This is this is this is like 1869, 1870 kind of time period. Okay, so this is obviously this is prior to the Bolshevik revolution. Oh, yeah. By a long time. By a long time. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make that clear because, you know, I know in my mind, because I'm um, not very smart and can't keep up with things, I just I just want to remind everybody where we are in this timeline because we did already mention the Bolsheviks, but just I wanted to note that this is happening before the Bolsheviks reared their hideous little Well heads. before, well before. Well before. So, a few months later after this, uh, he took and passed the entrance exam to join the Lifeguards uh, Curacier Regiment apparently hoping that doing nothing would be more exciting if he got to wear armor while doing it. 
Uh, He's right. (laughs) Yeah, cuirassier, that comes from the word cuirass, which is the French word for breastplate. And so those are the dudes with the breastplates and the sabers and the helmets, usually with really cool plumes on them that you see in traditional parades and stuff. I'm in. I'm in. We need to bring back the cuirassiers. I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. Um, So the fact that both these regiments that he was in these are, you know, two of the most prestigious regiments in the Russian military, since they're both part of the the lifeguards. It testifies to the status of his family, since it's very selective and exclusive. You don't just get into these as some Joe Schmo off or Ivan Schmo or whatever off the street. <laughs> you know, these are these are sort of children of the elite who are in these regiments. So that puts a little bit more, a uh, little more potential uh, legitimacy upon the claim that his mother might have been aristocracy. Yeah, and that he's, you know, his father was a very well-respected, you know, Russian naval captain and everything. Oh, right, 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 of course. So then in 1874, something happened. Uh Uh-oh. We know that Yevgeny was transferred to the 13th Hussar Regiment, still a cavalry regiment and a well-respected one, but a massive step down in prestige from the lifeguards and not a career move that normally happens. You don't go from the lifeguards to the 13th Hussar Regiment. Like, you know, it's like a respected, it's not the, it's not, you know, the the bottom of the barrel, but it's a huge step down from where he was. So if this so if this was a Baywatch movie, this would be the inciting incident where he loses his status as a special Baywatch agent and has to work at a podunk, you know, backcountry community pool before he can work his way back up to being a lifeguard in in Baywatch. I'm just kidding. All right, please yeah. Okay. Um, so fortunately, there is a single <laughs> sentence penciled into the margin of a surviving copy of his service record, which holds the answer, and it just said, "Is accused of suicide attempt by poisoning." That's it. Whoa. So a suicide attempt would be a scandal for any respected military officer, and it would be absolutely unthinkable for a serving officer of the most honored and prestigious regiment in the Imperial Army, the, you know, the Baywatch. Um, so since that <laughs> note is all we have to go on, we can't say for sure what actually happened, who accused him, whether it was true, and so on. But we can say that this accusation, true or not, destroyed his reputation and pretty much tanked his career in the Imperial Army, since he was probably never going to advance in the ranks again with that hanging over him. Hmm. Yeah, and so it's from there, it's not a big jump to see a lot of his later life that we're going to look at as an attempt to overcome the stigma and regain his honor. But we will get to that. See, I'm telling you, that was the inciting incident. That was the that was the rock bottom, the thing that kicked him in the ass and got him back on the back on the trail to to glory. I'm telling you. <laughs> well, you're you're not you're not wrong. You're not wrong. All right. So in 1875, uh, so this is not long after he applied for early retirement from the military, citing quote shattered home circumstances. Hmm. Uh. And since it solved the whole, like, military dishonor question for everyone, his retirement was immediately granted, even though he was only 26. I mean, that's the dream, isn't it? Retiring to 26. (laughs) I could retire today. (laughs) So in keeping with the tradition of the Imperial Army, he was promoted up one rank as he retired. So he technically left the army at the rank of captain after six years in. What the shattered home circumstances were, we have no idea, since he didn't, you know, own any land or have a household or, you know, we don't know what these shattered home circumstances were. It may have just been a formal reason needed for the application. Hmm. Damn those Bolsheviks burning the family records. 
Well, the Bolsheviks didn't. The family did, because otherwise the Bolsheviks would have found them. I'm sorry. Damn those Bolsheviks for making the family burn their own records. Yep. So whatever Maximov's endgame and motivation was, he was rearing to start on it now that he was free from sitting around a barracks in peacetime polishing his armor. As soon as his retirement was approved, he made plans to leave Russia and find a war to fight in. Fair. (laughs) That seems reasonable. Um, So he was able to secure a position as a foreign correspondent for a newspaper in St. Petersburg to cover the Serbian War for Independence from the Ottoman Empire. Ah. We've run into them before. Journalist! Allegedly. (laughs) So, and although he did duly write and return reports for his job of, you know, wrote articles, he pretty much immediately also became a participant in the war, fighting alongside the Serbs against the Turks at multiple battles, which one kind of suspects was his plan all along, and mm-hmm. that the whole, you know, foreign correspondent thing was just a way to get in. Well, I mean, whatever it takes, right? Yep. And he briefly returned to Russia to help organize a medical volunteer unit before returning back to Serbia. Um, I kind of wonder if he had a work meeting while he was back and if they knew he was actually fighting in the war and not just writing about it. I'm just imagining him being like, oh, yeah, the war's intense. You know, the heat of battle, the red mist, the rush of combat. Not that I would know. Right. (laughs) Since he's technically supposed to just be there writing articles, not, you know, fighting. They're like, Maximov, you're missing three fingers. He's like, I write really, really hard. (laughs) It was a terrible typewriter accident. (laughs) But in any case, after organizing the medical stuff, uh, he was back the very next year for round two. This time, Maximov got even more up close and personal, sneaking into the Ottoman province of Bosnia to lead a Serbian guerrilla unit behind Ottoman lines for months and hopefully writing some kick-ass articles before returning to Russia by way of Bulgaria and Romania, where he did make a lot of friends, including the future Prime Minister of Bulgaria. Which is exciting. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And he'll be the Prime Minister of Bulgaria after it gained independence for the first time since the 1300s, which is when it first came under Ottoman sway. Man, there was a lot packed into that paragraph there. There really was, wasn't there? But... Uh, most of it is tangential at best. Okay. So yeah, Good he's enough. he's doing stuff. He's doing stuff. He's leading guerrilla troops behind Ottoman lines. He's being like the only journalist I've ever actually like been impressed by. <laughs> yeah, the the literally the only one. Yep. So as the position of the Serbs in their war for independence deteriorated, Russia succeeded in wrangling a deal with Austro-Hungary to allow them to safely attack the Ottomans without starting a world war. Look at that. Well, that's uh, unprecedented. Yeah, I mean, it's it's we're, we're definitely in the period where everyone knows how close anything could come to being a world war. And so whenever a nation, one of the big nations does anything, they've got to make deals with everyone about it. Yeah. It was a, that was a, uh, very, um, very, uh, man, words fail me today. I'm not, I'm not finding my vocabulary yet, but I was going to say that the instability of that time, I remember a history professor talking to me about like just how complicated all the agreements and, you know, alliances and all that stuff, all that, like how complicated all that was it was like it was just a you know a tinderbox ready to just blow up basically 
Um, but yeah, yep. I mean that there's a there's a that's another time where I tell you to go listen to Dan Carlin. But you know, everybody's already listened to that by now, so I'm gonna just shut the fuck up and let you continue. So anyway, the the Russians get uh get the deals in place that will allow them to attack the Ottomans without starting a world war. And somehow, despite having already had a military career and retired, Maximov was able to get permission to enlist in the Russian army again as a transportation officer and advanced into the Balkans with the Russian army to support the Orthodox alliance of Serbia, Montenegro, Romania, and Bulgaria against their Ottoman overlords who had been ruling them for centuries. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. I like that. Yep, and this alliance pushed the Ottomans out of the Balkans and actually reached the gates of Constantinople before Western powers, in particular Britain... Oh, no. ...forced the Russians to make a truce with the Turks and even sent a fleet of battleships to Constantinople to intimidate the Russians. So, before we had the, uh ever-looming danger of Russian communism. The British were getting in the Russians' way, right? So The British were getting in everyone's way. So why the hell would they have a problem with the Russians taking Constantinople? Because then the Russians would have too much geopolitical influence. Ah, yes, we we would prefer that to go to the Ottomans who, you know, were... Well, I don't want to Well, the Ottomans were on the whole weaker, so... That's true. If Russia took influence from the Ottomans, it would then make Russia too powerful in the eyes of Britain. Ugh. Ew. It's it's all disgusting. Yeah. uh, We must retake Constantinople, even if the Russians have to do it, for Christ's sake. All right. (laughs) Quite literally. Um, (laughs) Okay. So even so, even with this British intervention ruining everything, uh, the war did result in the independence of Romania, Serbia, Montenegro, and Bulgaria for the first time in literal centuries. Um, And Yevgeny Maximov was there for all of it as a Russian railroad transportation officer. In fact, at some point during this war, can't tell you when, where, why, how, or who, he met and married a Romanian woman. And that is all the information I have about that. Well, uh, good for him, I guess. Yeah, we uh, just know he married a Romanian woman. Well, yeah, good good for him. <laughs> yep, that's the dream, I guess. Anyway, <laughs> in 1880, he was appointed as a representative of the Russian Red Cross in Central Asia uh, during Russia's conquest of Turkmenistan which at that point had no governing state. There were a few independent cities, but the rest of the steppes were just inhabited by semi-nomadic tribes who raised sheep and raided neighboring areas to capture slaves to sell. And Russia decided, yeah, Russia decided it was going to conquer this region and make it part of the Russian empire, which I could sympathize with. I mean, having the whole like slave raiding nomads next door is a little awkward. Well, you might as well incorporate them. (laughs) And so Maximov goes there as the representative of the Russian Red Cross, and he met and served with General Skobolev, who is another impressive-looking figure who I put a picture in just because I liked the picture. God damn, look at that guy. Yeah, what do you think? Tell us about it. Um, this is like, this guy looks like a literal lion, um... Yeah, just massive fucking mustache. Like, where the hell are these these days? And then it looks like he's got all these, like... Well, he's definitely got medals and things and what looks like a some kind of a cross. Do you know what those are? 
Those are it's all Russian, like, Russian military awards. Okay. And the stars, what are those? Do you know? I assume also oh. Russian military awards. Right, but like they're, they're patches. That's the only difference, but... And what do you call those things on the shoulders? Epaulets. Yeah, that's an epaulet? I thought that was just like a little strap. That looks like uh, a mop. <laughs> well, it's a very fancy epaulet. Okay, there we go. That's a fancy epaulet. Yep. Alright, yep. I, I wish you all could see this picture, but you probably won't see it. <laughs> Yeah, so this guy is pretty impressive, um, and he always dressed in a white uniform and rode on a white horse right in the center of battle. Uh, so he was known uh, by his soldiers as the White General, and the Turks called him the White Pasha. Jesus. And later on, uh, World War II British Field Marshal Montgomery actually wrote that Skobolev was, quote, the world's ablest single commander between 1870 and 1914. That's quite a stretch between 1870 and 1914. But he looks like he would be the world's ablest single commander. And this is a, you know, a British general saying that, so it's not like it's somebody who's necessarily that friendly. Right, 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 right. And so during this, Maximov was in charge of a advanced flying medical cavalry detachment, which sounds pretty suspect to me. I'm not sure why you would need medical anything in front of your army. Yeah. <laughs> That's not usually who you send in front. I'm just going to say. There, it's just uh, it's just the medic from Team Fortress 2. He's got to be out there to support the heavy. So, based on uh, Maximov's previous shenanigans, I'm pretty sure it was actually just an advanced flying cavalry column engaging the mounted Turkmen raiders to clear safe passage for the more conventional forces, and it was just because he was there allegedly working for the Red Cross that they made it the advanced medical cavalry detachment? Uh... Yes. <laughs> but that, nevertheless, nevertheless, Maximov did live up to his official role as a Red Cross representative during the siege and storming of Georg Tepe in January of 1881. Now, Skobolev was a great general, very competent, but he did have a reputation for being pretty brutal, especially when sieging cities, and there were usually a lot of civilian casualties when he sieged. So... Uh -huh. When the army breached and stormed the city, Maximov sprang into action and immediately set up these designated non-combat zones and brought thousands of women and children into them and organized supplies and medical care. And about 5,000 women and children were kept safe during the storming of the city this way, while the male population either escaped the city or were killed in the Russian assault. I suppose when you're in a non-state army sort of situation, since these are, you know, nomadic raiders who also have a city, it's probably very hard to differentiate which men are combatants, since it's not like they have an army. Yeah, but I, it, you said that, and I, I, all I could think of was the, the boys' locker room versus the girls' locker room. <laughs> you know that meme? Oh, yeah, I know the meme. Yeah, girls' locker room, 5,000 women and children kept safe in a zone organized by Maximov. <laughs> Boys' locker room, literally running for your life. <laughs> From a guy who's legendary for killing non-combatants. <laughs> uh, classic boys' locker room. But additionally, uh, they also the Russians also freed about 600 slaves in the city. So that's, that's a feel-good moment for everyone. Oh, yeah, that's a good thing. Yep. Good for the Russians. So this is this what Maximov's up to, the old advanced medical cavalry. 
whatever that means. Um, but in 1881, after this campaign, Tsar Alexander II was assassinated by a revolutionary socialist movement, and an outraged Maximov joined the gendarmerie, that is the military police, in hopes that he could actively work on the suppression of anarchist and revolutionary socialist movements, because despite his disgrace and removal from the lifeguard regiment, Maximov had remained very attached to the Russian monarchy, and so the fact that they killed the Tsar really got to him. Yeah, I mean, he he was in, I mean, it's like a former Secret Service agent. Like watching the president get killed or something like that. I mean, it's like I literally held an umbrella for that guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that really got to him. So he joins the military police. But when he does this, he mostly ends up just sort of waiting around where he was stationed at a Russian port on the Black Sea, doing nothing. And as we've seen, waiting around and doing nothing is not something that Yevgeny Maximov was very good at, right? Mm. Yeah. Right. So, in 1884, he resigns from the police and attempted to start a third military career by once again enlisting in the Russian army. Apparently, Yeah, sorry, sorry. (laughs) Apparently, connections have their limit, though, because this time he was refused. They're like, dude, you you can't retire. You can't start and retire again. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm going to guess that's not going to stop him because he is named Yevgeny Maximov, not Yevgeny Minimov. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how long have you been waiting for that? Uh, don't a couple paragraphs. Okay, okay. <laughs> it took me that long to think of it. <laughs> That's why we have a four point five on iTunes. Amazing. Uh, yep. Please carry on. <laughs> Unfortunately, we now reach a period of complete obscurity. We have no evidence. No documents and no idea what Maximov did for the next decade. Zip. Zero. Absolutely nothing. The Russian historian I mentioned earlier, the one who tracked down Maximov's son, uh, actually wrote concerning this period, quote, actually, why don't you read the quote? Sound like a historian. Ugh. All right, let's see here. Like a good historian. A Russian historian. All right. Uh, I don't know if we need to be subjected to your Russian accent. It is unlikely that this veil of silence betokens a particularly happy or successful period for him. The 30s and 40s are often the most important and productive decades in men's lives, and official success has many friends. The silence of these years of Maximov's life is productive of mainly sad speculation. So yeah, that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's that it's pro- no news probably isn't good news when it comes to Maximov. All right, yeah. It should also be noted here that we have no idea at all what happened to the Romanian woman or who she was or anything about her. Well, you know, a Romanian woman, well, no, I can't I can't even wedge a Ceausescu joke in there, but I was trying and I can't cuz that's I have no skills as a podcaster anymore. It's why we have a 4.5. <laughs> You're just going to keep coming back to that, aren't you? <coughs> like, rate, subscribe, everybody. <laughs> anyway, um, it's not till March of 1896 that we can pick up where Yevgeny is at. And at that point, he was on his way to Ethiopia. Ooh. Mm. Once again, as a Red Cross representative, but probably with a little more than that on his mind, as mm. is his want. Right. 
And um, you might not know this, but Russia and Ethiopia had a stronger relationship than you might assume, because yeah. Ethiopia is actually one of the world's oldest Christian countries, having officially converted in the fourth century. And so although they were Oriental Orthodox, which is different kind of Orthodox than the Orthodox churches of Europe, they enjoyed good relations with Russia and other Orthodox countries, especially since, you know, they are one of the only Christian countries in Africa that's historically Christian that wasn't Christianized, you know, by missionaries. So Hmm. at this and at this point in time, they were in a really complicated war with the Italians who held the neighboring part of Africa, which is now Eritrea. And Maximov seems to have felt a calling to assist a fellow Orthodox nation in need. Interesting. However, to get to there, uh, he had to go through Italian territory, and he was denied entry by the Italian authorities. So he's probably Probably, got a reputation at this point. It might have been the whole thing with the, you know, advanced medical cavalry. Right. (laughs) So he once again secured a position as a foreign correspondent for a Russian newspaper and hoped that the press card and the Red Cross credentials together would be enough to get in. And it seems to have worked because we know he did make it to Ethiopia. Unfortunately, we have very little information about what he did there since none of his documentation survives. However, he is mentioned in a few other people's letters and journals, so we have some clues. Mm. One Russian traveler whose journals we have mentions that Maximov met often with the emperor of Ethiopia, Menelik, perhaps as some sort of advisor. Hmm. Now, once again, Wikipedia says specifically that he did participate in one of the feudal military forces raised by the emperor to fight the Italians because they didn't have a professional standing army. They were still a feudal state. However, the source they cite, which I read, makes no such claim. Just that he was there and that he met the the emperor. So Uh, I really can't say for sure. But from what we've seen of Maximov, it wouldn't exactly be surprising. Right. But also leave it to Wikipedia to just cite. Never mind. We're not even going to go down that road again. All right. Yeah. Wikipedia sucks, everybody. So he may or may not. But I like to think he probably did participate more actively than just as a foreign correspondent. Oh, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. Another thing we learned from other people's writings is that Maximov was having some failing health while he was there. Hmm. In his own writings, he never refers to, you know, physical adversity or the health effects of his sort of rugged lifestyle. And the way he writes, you would assume everything was just going swimmingly. But we have references elsewhere from other people that describe being woken up in the night by the sounds of Maximov having fits of tossing around and coughing and choking in bed. So he's not doing so great. Yeah, oh, that doesn't... Uh... So he probably caught something or some sort of fever or whatnot, but he never mentions it. Hmm, he never references having had any sort of illness. Sucks it up and keeps it to himself, just like a man would do. Uh, that's that toxic masculinity, I guess. Oh, Jesus. All right. (laughs) So at this point, Maximov intended to form an expedition to set out from Ethiopia to chart the course and source of the Blue Nile River. But he suddenly abandons that plan when he gets news that Greece and Turkey had gone to war over the island of Crete. So he rushes back to Europe to join yet another group fighting the Turks because he's into that. I was going to say this this man really wants to fight Turks, which, I mean, I guess if you know your calling, you must pursue it. 
Yeah. He was in such a hurry that he didn't wait for a proper passenger ship to cross the Red Sea, and instead he attempted to cross himself in a tiny fishing boat. And Maximov and the crew barely made it across, because the fishing boat was intended for being like 200 yards from the shore. It was not intended for crossing the Red Sea. Good God. The stormy sea waves constantly poured over the boat, so they were just, they were bailing water nonstop, and all their food and fresh water was ruined by the waves, and they arrived after three days, having been continuously soaked in seawater for the whole time, starving and almost dead from thirst. Well, look, if you're, if you're going to be pickled by the Red Sea, um, I guess it's best to do it in a fishing boat, or to do it as an Egyptian soldier chasing Moses, um... And getting mm-hmm. washed away. I'm yeah, maybe True. the storm was so bad that they were like literally seeing like the bones and armor and chariots of of Egyptian soldiers that had been pursuing Moses, just like washing around. And what is that movie that I'm thinking of here? Prince of Egypt. Make, no, th- there's there's a movie where there's a big storm and it like reveals something, but I can't remember what it was because I'm not quite awake yet. Um, please carry on. <laughs> well, let us know if you think of it. I'll think of it. Anyway, sadly, uh, the war between the Greeks and the Turks ended pretty much right when Maximov got there. After all that. Well, that's so, a bummer. <laughs> yeah, so the, the hurrying was in vain. So he sadly went back to St. Petersburg to, to hang out, you know, plan where he was going to go next, I guess. Soon, however, he received a message from the Russian general Kuropatkin inviting him to stay with him in Central Asia, where he was in command. Once again, however, Maximov was thwarted because very soon after he arrived at the headquarters in Ashgabad, General Kuropatkin was appointed war minister and transferred back to St. Petersburg. So Maximov no longer had his in. I feel like back to St. Petersburg, this is the section of uh, of his life that we could call back to St. Petersburg. Yeah. Part, part one however, and two. He did make the best use of his time there and actually collected enough material before he left to write several articles about Afghanistan and Iran for Russian newspapers. He was, after all, allegedly just a reporter. It would be interesting to read an article from that era about a place like Afghanistan or, or, or Iran because it was... I mean, these these are places that we think of today and we're like, ah, yes, you know, it's just a hole in the ground or it's got lots of you know, um, internal problems, external problems, one might say as well. Um, but back then it was like the, the scene was completely different because, you know, we hadn't experienced two world wars and uh, years and years of atrocities. So there's that. Well, yeah, I mean, just think about, you know, Afghanistan in our Josiah Harlan episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a wild land. Um, sort of a, you know, um, uninterrupted by modernity in some ways, one might say. So, um, anyway, back to St. Petersburg. His, uh, Yevgeny's next venture after this was probably his most successful. He once again secured a position as a newspaper correspondent and traveled to South Africa to cover the Second Boer War. Ah, so you're a time traveler. What? I'm accusing you of being, uh, Yevgeny Maximov now. Oh, okay. I mean, I (laughs) I do have a rather impressive mustache, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, well... Time traveler. Yeah. So it's very likely that Maximov was there in a semi, very semi official capacity with the Russian war ministry. 
Because we know that he had communication and meetings with some high-ranking staff of the war ministry right before he left. Mm. Additionally, the very scant amount he actually published at this time makes it seem suspect that the newspaper was actually employing him as a reporter. Nevertheless, Mm. no recorded trace can be found of what his mission might have been. Well, I I will just say... The best journalists write the least, so there you go. He wrote one article, and it wasn't until two years after he left South Africa. Okay, well, m- maybe m- maybe it's less indicative of... <laughs> so yeah, I, it just seems like it might have been even more of a front than it usually was. Right. And the British seem to clearly think so, because they tried to prevent Maximov from going to South Africa. They forced him to get off his ship in Alexandria, um, Egypt... And wouldn't let him sail through to sail through to South Africa. They said his presence was not <laughs> desired in South Africa. Undesirable. But Maximov was undeterred. He traveled via train from Alexandria to Port Said, and then was able to board a ship in Port Said that took him to Djibouti, and then Zanzibar, and then Madagascar, and finally from Madagascar to the mainland in Mozambique, which was part of Portuguese East Africa. And from Portuguese East Africa, he made his way across land to the Transvaal. Ah, we can't get away from this Transvaal. It's the this double the- A's. It's, it's words that have two A's in a row or just, they, they exert this pull on me. Yeah, like Kanak last week. <laughs> ah, yes. Thule. Thule. No, it's Kanak and it's owned by Raytheon. I'm just kidding. It's not. But they have that, I think they have the, a nuclear reactor or some crazy alien shit up there. I'm, I'm just kidding around. All right, please carry on. So, um, Maximov's reception at first among the Boers and among the other Russians who had volunteered was mixed. Because as a staunch supporter of the Russian monarchy, as we've talked about, Maximov did not get along well with some of the other Russian volunteers who were leftists who had found it politically expedient to not be in Russia and were very sympathetic to revolution and so he, him being a like old school monarchist did not get along well with those Russians, as you can imagine. Right. Yeah. And he was also apparently a little bit hard to get along with in general, um, according to some people, not according to others. But a Belgian woman who served as a nurse with the Transvaal volunteers, whose name was Alice Braun, described Maximov. And can you read this quote? And I'm not going to ask you to sound like a Belgian nurse because I I don't want to be subjected to that, much less the poor listeners. Well, what voice should I read it in if not a Belgian nurse's voice? I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, okay. Mm. The colonel, in fact, is a man of action, and his manners savor somewhat of the camp. He is a believer in the poetry of war, and says he likes nothing better than to hear the whistling of bullets and the thunder of cannon. And, in fact, when he indulges in recollections of his service with Skobolev, the handsome white curacier, his face lights up, and he becomes a poet inspired by the noise of war. Wow. Yeah, that's and then uh, she adds another little bit elsewhere, which you can go ahead and add. Yes. He is as bold as a lion, though he's as obstinate as a mule. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty good. I like that description as well. Hmm. Thank you, Belgian nurse. <laughs> Here, can you uh, mark this? I have to eat some. Last episode about halfway through. Oh, you were just yeah. Like, can you hear me eating cookies over here? 
And I said no, but you can clearly hear you eating cookies. <laughs> that that's pretty good, actually. That's probably why we have a four point five on it. <laughs> uh, very unprofessional. They ate cookies on the air. <laughs> disgusting. This just disgusting. I'm currently eating a Kit Kat. Oh, good for you. <laughs> uh, I have a half finished White Claw here. Maybe I'll drink that. I'm just kidding. Not gonna do that. Oh, excellent! Is it warm and lost all its carbonation? Uh, yes. <laughs> Exquisite. Well, that's the best kind. The best kind. So I, I'm a little bit, a uh, little bit tired of White Claw. I'm gonna, I've got to switch it up. I don't want to go back to beer, and I definitely don't want to go for anything harder. So I might go to wine next. I drank White Claw once, and I hated it. Really? Oh yeah. What flavor did you have? I don't even remember. Uh, was it lime? I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, the lime's pretty pretty much the baseline. Anything else is kind of gross. Like, there's a wild berry flavor that just tastes like, uh, not Skittles, that would be too good. Smarties. It tastes like Smarties. Which is kind of gross in a drink. It might have been that one. Yeah. But it was just like... It was like nasty, fruity, rubbing alcohol. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like, uh, that sounds like wild berry. Really, really gross. Okay, let me grab a drink of water to wash this Kit Kat down. Sure, I can hear I can hear the particles slopping around inside of your mouth. So yes, as bold as a lion, but as obstinate as a mule. So, Hell that's yeah. our man, that's our boy. By March of 1900, Maximov was well ensconced in the Boer War effort, serving as deputy commander of the Volunteer European Legion, Hmm. which were all the European volunteers, sort of a loose organization of them, and apparently interacting frequently with the highest government authorities. Another journalist, uh, also Russian, Yevgeny Augustus, which is a cool name, by the way, Yevgeny Augustus? Oh, yep. yeah. Who was, he was there covering the war and was actually a journalist, unlike Maximov. Um, he, wrote, <laughs> he, he wrote about this. Uh, here, I want you to read this quote. Okay. <clears throat> Sound like a, a good Russian journalist. Oh, God. Uh, by ways known only to him, he earned... That's the same voice. By ways known only to him, he earned the confidence of the Transvaal authorities, began to visit President Kruger without ceremony, became quite at home with old rates. Wow! <laughs> Entered into relations with Stein to make us, uh, to us ordinary mortals who never dreamed of the honor to have tea with Kruger or rates. His activities seemed highly mysterious. Wow! Okay! Interesting! Yeah, so this kind of lends credence to the he might be there in a semi-semi-semi-official capacity, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he's having tea with Kruger and Rates, which... Yeah, I mean, and of course, this is, you know, the rates of the father of our rates from last time. Oh, right, right, right. Since right. he was Secretary of State. Right. Ah, so it might be, became quite at home with the elder rates. Yes. Then. Yeah, that's... Okay, gotcha. gotcha. Yep. So uh-huh. many of the foreign volunteers were viewed with a little bit of suspicion by the rugged Boers... And Maximov was among the very few who earned full acceptance and respect among them. Because they were, the Boers did not respect people just because they were there. You had to earn it with them. And Maximov did. He did this by displaying bravery and zeal in battle and performing remarkable feats involving the Boers' two favorite things. Do you want to guess what those are? 
Ah, uh, the boar's two favorite things. Um, killing the British and not pushing to the sea. <laughs> Close. Um, more related. Horses and guns. Okay, well, that obviously. <laughs> so, yeah, apparently his, even though he didn't do much that, you know, sort of fulfilled him, apparently uh, old Yevgeny had gotten very adept with horses during his time as a cavalry officer because he was able to tame and ride horses that even the Boers had given up as untamable. That's rather impressive. And he also shot an antelope at 800 meters from a moving train after several Boers... <laughs> Yeah, no, after several Boers had tried and failed, and this act especially won him their acceptance and approval, since he had pulled off a shot that not even their best marksman could do. Yeah, and they're hunters. And <laughs> he shot an antelope from at 800 meters from a moving train. Uh, wow, what a man. <laughs> yeah, so he's obviously an extremely... Like, he was a good writer from all accounts. Like, he was fine as a journalist, but he really was apparently a phenomenal soldier. Yeah, well, sounds like it. Yeah. So, he, after things like that, the Boers really took Maximov in and, like, full respect. There was no, no holding back on their part after that. Mm. So, like the Boers, Maximov also had a low opinion of most of the volunteers who had come to fight for the Transvaal. Um, charging that the complete lack of military experience of most of the volunteers, along with their sort of unwillingness to train and to submit to proper military discipline, made them basically useless in the field. In addition mm. to this, he also really despised many of them for coming, as he saw it, in hope of getting rich rather than for ideological reasons like, you know, killing the British. Right. Remember, this is interesting, though. Oh, please go on. Sorry. What's what's one of the big things this war is really about? What do the British want to control? Uh, minerals. Gold and diamonds. So there's like right. there's a lot of money at stake. And so a lot of people who went to volunteer, this is and this is probably true, but this in Maximov's eyes, a lot of them were just sort of adventurers who are hoping to sort of get get an in and be able to sort of get their claim in there and get some gold and diamonds and go home. Right. Uh, it's interesting, though, to get I was going to make a comment. It is interesting to see an outside perspective um, from, say, a, like a, a Russian from, you know, the czarist era on this sort of, you know, the Second Boer War was, you know, ended up being asymmetric warfare. It ended up being like not just, you know, claptrap and, and um, you know, this motley crew of, of uh, you know, independence, freedom fighters. It's, you know, to see that from the outside, to see a man with a background in, you know, very disciplined and orderly military combat, military action and that sort of thing coming in and being like, yeah, you guys like, you need to learn to at least some discipline. Um, that is, that's interesting to hear. That's interesting to hear from a, from another source. Yep. 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 And so this, uh, this extremely strict regimen that Maximov demanded made him unpopular with many of the volunteers in the European Legion. And so he was put in charge specifically of the Hollander Corps, which was a Dutch detachment who were considered the most disciplined of the foreign fighters and were there for ideological reasons. They were there because they viewed, you know, the Boers, since they were Dutch, as their cousins, and they had come to sort of fight for their kin. And so these were the men that Maximov was put in charge of because the other volunteers he didn't get along well with because he just had standards that they weren't going to meet. 
But these guys worked well because they were there for ideological reasons to fight the British and, you know, die for their kin. And that's what he wanted. He wanted hard, disciplined men who were as ready to die as he was instead of gold-seeking adventurers. Right. So, like, the military now versus the military in World War II. (laughs) I'm not going to touch that. Yeah, let's not touch that. (laughs) So, on April 30th of 1900, Maximov led the Hollander Corps in the Battle of... And I really don't know how to pronounce it. And I've seen it spelled different ways. It's spelled two different ways in this document because I didn't know which one to pick. But Tabanchu, maybe? I I can't pronounce an N, a C, and an H altogether at the front of a word. But anyway, the Battle of Taba and Chu, where he was seriously wounded. During this battle, Maximov fought with the British Army Captain Beechcroft Taus. Also, ah, his name Beechcroft is Beechcroft. We're reaching yes, levels you- of British that shouldn't even be possible. <laughs> you hold your child in your arms for the first time you look down and you go, Ah, he shall be named Beechcroft. <laughs> And the kid just, like, puts on a monocle and goes, quiet. (laughs) So, yeah, um, Maximov engaged in close combat with Captain Beechcroft and fired the shot that blinded Taos in both eyes, while at the same time, Taos fired a shot into Maximov. So, as Taos was awarded the Victoria Cross, the highest, it's like the Medal of Honor for the British Empire, highest military award, and because of that, the Battle of Tabanchu brought international attention to Maximov because he was mentioned in the article in this sort of close combat between the two officers. Although the hmm. British press falsely reported that Maximov had been killed. He he wasn't. Maximov survived. Right. They both survived. But at this battle of Tabanchu, Maximov suffered a splintered shoulder, a badly damaged shoulder bone or shoulder blade, and a serious bullet wound to his skull. Uh, <laughs> and... I found here a British newspaper illustration of this. I like how they don't show Captain Taos being shot in the face. They just show Maximov getting shot in the face, even though they shot each other in the face. So wow, Ma- I that's, just... Sorry, go that's ahead. That's Maximov on the right in this British newspaper illustration. That's amazing. Yeah, for, for those of you who uh, are not watching the video element of the podcast, which doesn't exist, um, this picture... <laughs> That's that's not even that good of a joke. Uh, there is no video element. Don't go looking. Um, this picture is hilarious. Like, you've just got this British guy with a saber and a pistol, like, standing on top of a dead pile of dead bodies, it looks like. Um, just shooting this guy right in the face and his hat's flying off. But I love the pose. I, I really want to, like, make a meme of this British guy just shooting and... I just want to put the caption, fuck around and find out on it. <laughs> Here, you know, right. you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you right now a picture of Beechcroft Taos, because this was a serious-looking man. Are you ready? Yes. Wh- Holy shit! Look at that guy! And you can see he doesn't have eyes anymore. Right? <laughs> he looks like... He's got a... What's the Sonic character? Dr. Robotnik? That's what he looks like, but with no eyes. The mustache levels are off the chain. That mustache is like eight inches across. That's, it's like a cigar or like a, like a, I don't even know how to describe it, but that is a fucking badass looking man. Gotta hand it to him, even though he is, you know, fighting for the British. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, but so there, and that's he's got his Victoria Cross on. But yeah, so he got shot in the face by Maximov while shooting Maximov in the face. Which God, that's how a lot of my experience playing first-person shooters goes. <laughs> Tarkov specifically, I'm exactly. Guessing. Yep. Mm. And um, so yeah, Maximov was he was far beyond his uh, his role as a journalist at this point. He's literally leading a you know, a regiment and getting shot in the face and shooting people in the face and stuff. Mm-hmm. And a certain William Rates, the father of Denais, who we know all too well, wrote mm-hmm. this in a letter to a Russian volunteer nurse. He wrote this about Maximov. And can you read this? And you can do a Elder Rates voice. An Elder Rates? Ah, uh, okay. Uh, you know, sister, that I am not greatly impressed. That's not at all. Dutch or anything, but the old man voice I can do. You know, sister, that I am not greatly impressed by all these foreigners who come offering us their services, but concerning your countrymen, I'm happy to say that we were both mistaken in our caution. All our commandos who have come into contact with Colonel Maximov praise his bravery, his ability to discipline men, and the value of his advice. General Louis Bolther said that although he is no coward himself and has seen many brave men, he not only never saw but never imagined anything like the bravery of this Russian colonel, and one of the Dutch who served under him said that one couldn't but follow him. He is a real leader. Wow! High praise! Yeah, so that's that's pretty good, huh? And you, you also kind of get the idea that, like we talked about a little bit in the beginning, that Maximov really doesn't care if he dies. He wants to sort of attain Kleos, like attain that military glory that he was sort of barred from by his the whole suicide thing early on, and he is just going to do it no matter what. Yeah, well, I mean, again, if he had a, if he had a brush with suicide, I mean, that's pretty typical. We see, you know, sort of a loss of the fear of death. Uh, we see this. We've seen this repeatedly. Um, in uh, when we've covered people who have had bouts with you know, depression, suicide, whatever, where once they've like gone down that road and not crossed the line, they like just sort of go out there and become they live their best lives with no fear of death, which is very interesting to see uh, repeatedly. Definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. So in May of 1900, Maximov was elected a general, which is a fighting general, so like a field commander, by the Transvaal Burgers, that is, you know, the, the Boer citizens. But the extent of his injuries prevented him from assuming command. But, and this is really cool, he was the only foreigner to be elected to that position by a Boer assembly. The only one, mm. the only non-Boer to be elected to that position. Impressive. So that's just a testament to, you know, the Boers, they're a very, you know, ruggedly sort of independent individual people like right they have trouble listening to their own officers so the fact that they are electing this russian as you know their highest military office it really says something yeah that's i mean considering what we've learned about the boers in the boer series um today's rate series uh that is very surprising and interesting to hear Yep. Unfortunately, uh, it was not too long after this. It was the end of May. 
um, when Johannesburg and Pretoria fell, and that is when you know the conventional war ends and it becomes the the real asymmetric sort of guerrilla warfare. And so yeah. Maximov left the Transvaal because his wounds made him unfit for guerrilla warfare. Because remember, he was really injured. He was shot in the head, and his shoulder yeah. blade was broken. So he really can't do the sort of you know. 40 hours in the saddle guerrilla warfare thing just physically right. is not able to. Well, if you did listen to our Danae's rate series at the end, there, like wounded or unwounded. You needed to be fit as all, all heck to survive in those conditions. They were just horrific, uh, mobile government. That's all you need to know. <laughs> yeah. But within, so he left the Transvaal and where do you think he went? Back to St. Petersburg. Back to St. Petersburg. But within a year after his return from the Boer War, Maximov's life would once again be in danger, this time much closer to home. Uh So, not long after his arrival back, he was returning to St. Petersburg from a suburb by train. I don't know, he'd been going to the movies or something, hanging out Mm -hmm. with the the bros. I I don't think he had bros, but I don't know. Anyway, he's returning from a suburb into down you know into real st petersburg by train when he had the misfortune to find himself sharing a car with a man and four women Uh oh that's that's not the joke um it well i'm i'm foreseeing it turned out something to do with it that the man was prince alexander von sein wittgenstein berleberg who was serving as one of the bodyguards of czar nicholas ii and Ah. the women well, one of them was his mistress, and the others were her friends who were all mistresses of other important Russian, like, you know, business leaders and politicians and stuff. Oh, man. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be in a train car with them. Yeah, that'd be a very awkward. Ugh. Yep, yep. So Maximov apparently looked very disgusted by the situation because he recognized them and knew who they were. And mm. it Maximov had a pretty rigid moral code overall, and he strongly disapproved of a married man like the prince keeping a mistress. So he apparently is just sitting in the train car looking very disgruntled. He didn't, you know, he didn't say anything. He's just looking very not pleased and sort of, you know, not liking the company. Hmm. So the yeah. w- the women started making fun of him to each other in French, assuming that he could not understand. And it gets very fuzzy here. Wikipedia says, but I have not been able to track down where they got this, but there are sources I wasn't able to get access to that are in weird archives in Switzerland. So it's possible this is came from somewhere, but says one of them made a reference to him trying to kill himself because they figured out who he was him trying to kill himself because his fiance cheated on him. Oh, my this God. is the only reference to this I could find because remember I wasn't able to find and researchers weren't able to find information about his suicide attempt, but I, so I don't know if this is true or if it was just making fun of him because he's an angry badass and they're just, you know, scum, but right. <laughs> it may have been that. But anyway, So they're making fun of him in French, and he could understand French, and he made some reply. The substance of this reply was never recorded, and interestingly, it wasn't mentioned in the later court proceedings we'll talk about, whatever he said. But whatever it was, the prince challenged him to a duel for insulting his mistress. Mega simp over here. (laughs) How dare you pick on my favorite cam girl? (laughs) 
Yeah, absolute simp, Prince Alexander von Sein Wittgenstein Berleberg. <laughs> Why won't you debate me on my podcast? <laughs> what an asshole. All right. So Maximov did not want to fight the duel. He, for one thing, he knew he would win because he can hit an antelope at 800 yards from a moving train. Right. So he really tried to avoid the duel, tried to talk the prince out of it. He even offered to publicly express his regret for the offense, but he refused to apologize for whatever it was he said specifically. He claimed he had done nothing that required apologizing. If only we knew what he said, we could talk about it. But since it I feel like since it wasn't mentioned in official stuff, what he actually said, he was probably right that he hadn't said anything that required apologizing. And the prince just had his ego bruised or something. I know what he said. I know what he said. He said what I said when we started going hard at the simps. <laughs> he said... If you can give $100 in a super chat to a cam girl, you can give $5 a month to a history podcast. <laughs> That's almost certainly it. That's exactly what he said. And then Mr. Prince Simp said, <laughs> Oh, dare you? Ah, yes, right, Prince Alexander Von Simp. <laughs> so, Maximov, as we've seen, was an expert marksman and soldier, and he knew he would easily slaughter the prince in a duel, which he had no desire to do. Maximov, you know, he was not a vindictive man. He didn't didn't want to just kill some random person. He loved fighting wars, but he wasn't just about, you know, shooting random people that he wasn't right. in a war against. So he decided that he would wait for the prince to shoot first, and if he died, so be it, because Maximov doesn't give a fuck. Right. <laughs> and if the prince missed, he would then hit him in the leg so that the duel would have officially happened, blood would have been shed, and everyone would come out of it alive, and there'd be no sort of way the prince could demand another one, since he can't claim it was, you know, defective or anything. If, you know, he had been hit, there wouldn't be any way for him to make Maximov do it again. So that was his plan. He would let the prince shoot at him, and then he would just leg him. Well... Because <laughs> I guess if he, if he just straight ahead. up missed, the prince could could claim that like he hadn't really participated in the duel and could mm. probably force him to do it again. Yeah, so and that's probably what he would do, wouldn't he? I mean, classic Prince von Simp. No, I was gonna say <laughs> it's it's interesting to see Maximov showing mercy to the simps. Uh, that's that's very interesting. Truly, we can learn from him. <laughs> Unfortunately, there was a complication. Uh-oh. You know how in math, when you multiply a negative number by another negative number, it becomes a positive number? Yes. So that's what happened. The seconds in the duel also wanted to avoid bloodshed. And the seconds are everyone who has a duel has to appoint a second. And if something happens, like, say, the guy gets in a carriage crash on the way to the duel and can't hold a gun anymore or whatever the second has to take his place so you always have a second when you have a duel and the second is also in charge of preparing your weapon for the duel and giving it to you right before it starts so the seconds of the duel talk to each other and they didn't want to see the prince get btfo'd by maximov either so they right. intentionally overloaded both pistols which would cause them to shoot high in hopes that they would accidentally shoot over each other's heads since they would you know aim for the chest or head it would shoot high it would go over it and, and that's what their plan is. But they didn't tell the shooters this, of course. So the oh, prince no. the prince aims at Maximov's head and overshoots. Maximov aims at the prince's leg and nails him right in the gut. Well, 
There goes that plan. Thank you, seconds. Yeah, and the prince died from this injury. And since dueling, which was extremely rare at this point, was illegal and subject to many, you know, specific laws, Maximov was put on trial for murder. Mm. However, the public rallied to his defense, which makes me think the prince was probably a jerk to more people than just Maximov. Well, and, and it had to come out what the duel was over, right? Yeah, I would. I'm sure it did. And so there were articles in, you know, all the big newspapers in defense of Maximov, and there were, you know, public, all sorts of public sort of displays of support for him. And the court felt such public pressure. And keep in mind, he killed, you know, a the prince was a one of the czar's lifeguards, officers, and he was a German nobleman. Like, this was a really prominent person that got killed by this, you know, twice-retired kind of unhinged military veteran. Right, right. So, like, under normal circumstances, you wouldn't think that would go well in court for Maximov, right? Right. But the court felt such public pressure that they sentenced him to the minimum amount possible, which is two years in prison, which is what you get just for participating in a duel, no matter what happens or who died or who's caused it. But they Mm. also simultaneously issued a, a request that he be pardoned by the czar. So they're like, ah. we're giving, you know, we're we're literally coming to the most lenient conclusion we possibly can based on the fact you came to a duel, and we're also officially asking that it just get wiped. Well, that pretty much shows where public opinion was. Yeah, and the pardon was quickly issued by the czar, and Maximov nice. was released from his very brief incarceration. Hmm. But he wasn't out of the woods yet. Because after Maximov's release from prison, friends of the prince, who were probably also scum, poisoned him at a party, which... Oh, jeez. You know, it's kind of funny since he apparently had attempted suicide by poison. Right. But he didn't die. Oh. Yeah, but maybe he... It reminds me of the, you know, the princess bride building up an immunity to Iocane powder. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so he didn't die. And so when they didn't... When he didn't die, they threw him from a third-story window which caused him to suffer several broken ribs, which he apparently just walked off. You know, all these Russians, when they get have these assassination attempts, it usually takes multiple, and I mean multiple, methods of execution to carry out any assassination. I mean, you've got Rasputin, you've got this Maximov character, uh, I can't think of any others, but it seems to be a pattern. <laughs> yeah, yep. And so, apparently, after realizing that he was indestructible, they gave up because there's no notice of them trying again. (laughs) I mean, they poisoned him and then threw him out a three-story window. And keep in mind, this is, like, a year or less after he was shot in the head and, like, had his shoulder blade all messed up. And you would think that having all those pre-existing injuries would make getting thrown out of a third-story window a death sentence, but not for Maximov. Wow. Yep. <laughs> Around this time, he also married again. Um, still uh, no word on what became of the Romanian woman. Literally just disappears hmm. from the record. Right. Um, this time, the wife actually has a name, which is nice, Maria Nikolaevna, who was the young widow of a deceased Russian general. And this is great. So they met at a dinner party when her gloves, which had been cleaned with a kerosene-based solution, caught fire from a candle on the table and began to burn and fuse to her skin. So Maximov, like, springs into action, jumping over the table and putting out the flames and removing the burning gloves before too much damage can be done. That's amazing. (laughs) And he then visits her as she recovered in the days that followed. And um, they got along really well, so he kept visiting her, and they soon decided that they would get married. 
Aww. What a great story, huh? Yeah, saved her hands from her own gloves. Mm. Yep. Unfortunately, since he had a previously recognized, a previous officially church-recognized wedding to the Romanian woman, and presumably would not be able to find her again to, like, I don't know, find out if she was alive or to get an official divorce, because it seems like um, when after he left Romania, they just had no contact anymore. I don't know if hmm. she was like, nah, I don't want to move to Russia, or whatever happened, but yeah, we just have no idea what happened to her. But because he'd had that wedding, even though we don't know if she's alive or what happened, we just know that he wouldn't be able to get a you know, a church wedding anymore. So he and Maria were only able to be married in a civil wedding, which is of much lower status in Russian society. But married they were. And they nice. soon had a son named Alexander, and Maria was pregnant with a second child when, in 1904, Maximov once again felt the call of patriotism. Ah, yes. Yep. So the Russo-Japanese War, which is often seen as the beginning of the end of Tsarist Russia, had begun. Maximov once again tried to enlist, even though he is now 55 years old, with a family, and he's actually earning a decent living with his uh, his writing. He's actually doing, like, the correspondent thing for real now, like, traveling around and writing articles for Russian newspapers. Hmm. Well, it's a lot to give up for enlisting. But once the war starts, he wants to enlist. So he actually writes a letter to the Tsar from Istanbul, Constantinople, <clears throat> where he had traveled on a writing assignment. <laughs> uh, and this is this is what he wrote to the Tsar, and you should read this in a badass voice. Okay. I received my baptism of fire in 1875 in the fields of Bosnia and Serbia. Having completed my battle experience in 1880 in the Akal expedition, I fought for the Boers in 1900. And my Russian accent is failing me. I have to play Call of Duty 2 again. I humbly appeal to your Imperial Majesty to order my enlistment to active service in order to enable me to use my battle experience to serve your Majesty and my dear fatherland in the fight against the enemy. I have been wounded many times, but I still have enough... Uh, let's see. But I still have left enough strength and enough blood, which I am ready to shed for the good and glory of my czar and my fatherland. Huh. Maximov goes pretty hard. Maximov, I'm telling you. Yep. Taking it to the Maximov. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> the czar um, got this letter and he underlined the bit with the request. But then, but and sent the letter on to the general staff. But he left the decision to them, who rejected it. But I like the ambiguity of him just underlining it and sending it to them. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so he repeated the request again and was again formally denied. So as a mm. last resort, he sent a telegram to the czar's mother, who had been the sponsor of the Russian Red Cross, which of course he had worked for for a long time, in hopes that she would intercede for him. I'm sorry, wow. the, the, that might offend your Protestant sensibilities, the idea of a mother interceding. Uh, <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> Anything? What? No. Jokes? Yeah. No, it was good. It was it a good was joke. Good. Okay. Very, okay. Very good. And, appara <laughs> and apparently it worked, take that, because <laughs> on August 1st, 1904, 
The official order was given to enlist Yevgeny Maximov one last time. He had apparently been packed and ready since he immediately set out and crossed the whole of Russia to arrive in Manchuria by September. Wow. So that's 5,000 miles. That takes a long uh, time. I was going to say, holy shit. So he was apparently like, you know, got his bag packed and just waiting. And the moment they're like, okay, fine. He's like on the train already. (laughs) Wow. That's um, when he got there, Maximov was given command of an infantry battalion. And the testimony of those around him at this time strongly suggests that Maximov was indeed finally happy having at last returned to the military glory he had been derailed from so early on. Because, you know, he's finally, he's commanding troops in the Russian military, which is what he always wanted to do. So this is, you know, he he loved the Boer War, but this is different. He's finally where he, you know, felt like he should have been all along. Wow, that's awesome. Yep. His commanding officer sent a telegram to his family, which said that, From the very beginning of the offensive... Yevgeny proved to be indispensable because of his battle experience and his even and cheerful manner. I was delighted to get such an indispensable aid. That's awesome. <laughs> Look at that. Even and cheerful manner. Even and cheerful. Confirmed even and cheerful manner. <laughs> yep. On the 30th of September, so this is less than a month after he starts, Maximov bathed and shaved and carefully prepared himself, announcing to his compatriots that he expected to die in the first engagement that day, and asking that of the money he had with him, a certain sum be given to his assistant and the rest be sent to his mother. He survived that day's fighting, but on the next day, October 1st, 1904, as he began to issue orders to the companies under his command when they went into battle, so first company, you know, left, second company, he's giving the orders, as he called out seventh company, a bullet pierced his temple and he fell dead on the field. He was buried somewhere in Manchuria and his grave is now unknown. Wow. But, I mean, he went down fighting. Yeah, I gotta hand it to him for that. And he went down cheerful and even. (laughs) Confirmed even and cheerful. (laughs) I love it. I love it. What a baller. Yeah. No, I was I I I was really just impressed by Yevgeny. Now, why did you decide to to cover Yevgeny Maximov? I know we we were going to cover a Russian anyway because it was requested by Seamus. Because um, I saw a picture of him in the Boer War while I was doing research for the Danae's Rates series, and I was like, that dude looks cool. He needs an episode. And then I read about him, and it was like, oh, he actually really needs an episode. Wow. Well, I mean, that's, that's great. I love it when we organically come across somebody, and it's just like, oh, I just need to cover that guy now. Um. My list is miles long, and many of them, many of the people on the list are people I've just run across and been like, holy fuck, this person was real? Like Emanuel Swedenborg. Uh, I'd, yeah. I'd vaguely heard of that, and then I was like looking into it, I'm like, did this man talk to God? You know, I love that. Um, what an interesting ride. Um, it was interesting to see how much we sort of like ran across some of the old stories we've covered on here, just sort of tangentially. Yep. No, it was incredible. Yeah. Did you have any any other thoughts? Um I I don't know. It's like it's like um we've covered some weird people, we've covered some bad people. Um 
but it's it's really not all that often we cover somebody who's just good you know it's like oh he just did what he loved and he went out like a hero and you know one time he was in a duel and that was all complicated and he saved his you know his wife's hands from fire and like overall like pretty good dude and everyone liked him and he was confirmed even in cheerful um it's oh, just yeah. kind of nice to do that every now and then i don't mm-hmm. know yeah Yep. So do you want to hear a little bit more about how this information came to light? Sure. So, as I said, it's very, very hit and miss what survived the, uh, you know, the destroying of documents. And so this is, I got a lot of information from a work published by a Russian historian named Apollon Davidson. I assume that means his mother was Russian and his father wasn't because Davidson isn't very Russian, but he is a Russian speaker from Russia and his first name is Apollon, which is a Russian name. So Mm. I don't know where the Davidson comes from. I'm assuming that means maybe his father wasn't Russian. But anyway, so he has a book that I got a lot of this information from and he talks about this. So in 1967, he was in Zambia in a little um, restaurant And he's talking to one of the other Europeans there who's an English mining engineer. And the English mining engineer has this uh, sort of semi-historical novel called The Rags of Glory, which is about the Boer War. And as they're just talking, the English guy's like, this is a really cool book. You should, you know, have a look at it. My father was in the Boer War. And so Apollon just sort of goes through it and he finds the bit that it mentions about Maximov and Beechcroft with the you know the trading headshots and he's like and he's like that's crazy is that real and so he starts trying to look into it and realizes he can barely find any information about this dude and it's like there's got to be somewhere where I can find more information about this like heroic Russian man hmm. and so it was kind of in the back of his mind for a whole decade and then ten years later in 1977 he was because he's a he's a historian he was working with. Uh, one of his graduate students, or she might have already been a PhD at that point, but it doesn't matter. Um, her name's Filatova. And they were going through stuff in the Museum of Anthropology in Leningrad, which is St. Petersburg. And they find a note on some stuff from Africa, some like, you know, African curiosities, that it was brought from Ethiopia by a yeah, so, you know, why Maximov in 1897, and that it was sold to the museum in 1936 by Maria Nikolaevna Maximova, so his wife. And so they're like, could that be the same Maximov? You know, he was in Africa, huh. and they're like, but it's a common name, Maximov. So they're like, it's probably not. But they decide to go to the address that's listed for this Maria Nikolaevna Maximova, And they find that the building's not there anymore, but they talk to some neighbors and actually find some super, super old women who actually knew her, knew Maximov's wife when they were kids. Wow. um, And are able to tell tell him about about her. And um, they are able to remember that the name of her son, and Maximov's son, was Alexander. That so Alexander is also a super common Russian name, but um, Apollon and Filatova decide they're going to go for it, and so they also remembered that they think he taught at a university. So they're like, okay, we can check all the universities and look for professors named Alexander Maximov. But first, they decide to literally just try the general directory telephone book in a public phone, and they 
look for any Alexander Maximovs who are born around the turn of the century, and they call they just cold call, and the first one they call, um, they they ask, you know, we're looking for Alexander Maximov who grew up in Svechnoy Lane, which is that street, and he's like, Oh, that's me. And they're like Whoa. We're looking for a Alexander Maximov who's related to Yevgeny Yakovlevich Maximov, who was in South Africa in 1900, and the dude's like, yeah, I'm his son. Whoa. And so this is, so he's, you know, he's in his late 70s at this point, so this is an old man. And they're like, whoa, can we talk to you? And he's like, yeah, you know, come on over today or tomorrow, and gives them his current address. And so they get there, and he has gathered together all the family papers he could find that survived, and is, you know, like, you know, you can use any of this stuff if you're looking for information about my dad. And uh, it's just, they're just blown away. And it turns out he's a professor of mining. And uh, where was I going with that? I don't remember. Anyway, he's a professor of mining. And he, like, invites them for tea and is like, I have some other boxes I think I can check. Why don't you come back tomorrow and we'll see what else I can dig up. And when they come back, he's actually found Maximov's personal journal from his time in South Africa. That was survived. His journal he kept in the Boer War. Wow. And so it's still really hit or miss what they had, but what this allowed them to do, these documents, is they were then able to have much more concrete sort of outline of where he was at different times and could then specifically look in archives because, you know, this is pre-digitization, so it's like, how do you find the information about someone without the internet? You need to like, no, I need to look at newspapers for this city in this month of this year, and then you have to physically go look at them. And so having sort of the general outline of his life, along with some specific stuff that they got from these family papers, they're then able to start finding articles that mention him in old archives. And a lot of the archives didn't allow copying, so they're like hand copying newspaper articles from like, you know, the late 1800s that he's mentioned in. And they spend years doing this and are able to piece together a large part of Maximov's life. That's amazing. Yeah. That's like, man, that's some real sleuthing right there. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Man. Yeah, no, and the family, they also, um, later Maximov's granddaughter also helps them. Um, because all, all the stuff uh, for Maximov is written just in an extremely quick cursive shorthand and is almost indecipherable. And so, like, the family's, like, helping them, you know, decipher what his handwriting looked like so they can read his notes and, you know, putting together sort of vague family memories that may tie into some document they have in order to situate something. It's like this incredible sort of detective story. I love it because it it's almost like... It's almost like this man died and nearly disappeared forever. But at the 11th hour, someone just chased that cosmic string and almost like prevented him from vanishing into the fabric of time. I mean, that's uh, I'm using very, you know, very, uh, I don't know, out there language. But I really think that it really does come down to like a the thing that makes that so romantic is that he was almost forgotten. He'd almost faded away, and then just right before it happened, he was revived, and that we have this story. It's, I love it. I and love he, it. And he deserves it, too. Like, yes! He deserves, you know, glory. Yeah. That's amazing. Like, you can almost make a, a uh, I don't know, I'm thinking creatively now, you can almost make a short film out of this, 
with no dialogue or anything and just like show this ghost starting to sort of fade into the sands of time and then, you know, someone just hears a little bit of an echo of Yevgeny's voice and they're like, ooh, who is that? And then they start digging and eventually they discover this glorious history, this glorious, wonderful story of a man who was even and cheerful. And yeah, exactly. It's wonderful. Wonderful. I love that. Yeah. And, oh, and then it's it's cool to think so, you know, some of a lot of that information for places we don't have documents from him, as I said, was from diaries and journals from other people. And so when you've got sort of the outline, you can figure out where he was. You can then start hunting down other Russians who were in that area in the same time and see, are there archives from their writings? Because, you know, they might have interacted and mentioned him. And there's a lot of places where we don't have anything from Maximov, but because of the information they did have, they were able to figure out where he was, hunt down like the journals of some, you know, like Russian traveler who was at the same place at the same time, go through it and find, okay, he had a conversation with Maximov and wrote down a bunch of stuff about him. That's incredible. No, it's That's it's a incredible. really incredible achievement. Yeah, it's a very okay. I know what we're gonna play out uh, with. <laughs> you ever see Big Fish? No. Okay, maybe I won't close out with that. But it's a similar thing where there's just all these like hints of stories, um, and it it sort of brings up this this entire character. And it's like, well, what's made up and what's not made up? We have to figure it out. And then it turns out there's some truth to all of it. Um, yeah. No, I don't know. It's um. Uh, Wow, what a cool story, man. That's awesome. Thank you, thank you. Well, yeah. shall we wrap it up? Yes, I think we should. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, with that, let's head to the surface. Davai. So, Aaron, if you had to come up with a closing question for today's episode, since I couldn't think of one, what would it be? Uh, well, uh, how much wood would a woodchuck chuck? I'm just kidding. Uh, let's see. If you could revive a person who's faded into time to reclaim their honor and restore their name, who would it be? How about that? How would I know who they are, though, if they faded away? Uh, if you were, mind. If you were a Romanian woman... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll just skip the question and go right to close. What do you think about that? I think so. It's, it's been a good run. All right. And with that, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right, so consider giving us a four-star review, not a five-star review. I'm just kidding. Give us a five-star review and consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. We want to give another shout-out to our patrons who are still with us. Um, you guys rock, and we just love having your support. Um, if Patreon isn't your thing, you can always drop us a little tip in Venmo, and our handle is at WTADP. Those are always appreciated, no matter how small, and they're always uh, exciting to get because we just love seeing that people are listening and uh, want to contribute. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of the czar play you out. (laughs) 